Hey, good afternoon, my AOWs. I'm so excited that you've decided to spend another half an hour with me here on my show. Today, I want to talk about medical gaslighting, what it is, and could this be happening to you, your friends, or your loved ones? My answer may surprise you. So if you're interested in learning more about this, and as always, my thoughts, well, let's do it. Welcome to Health by Heather Hirsch, a podcast dedicated to uncovering many of the women's health issues many of us are wondering about, but few of us are talking about. My mission is to expose the current gaps in knowledge and care on all things women's health. Enjoy. If I haven't said this before, I really want to thank you for being an avid listener to my show. It's always fun, amazing, exciting, incredible to see the show growing. And I get to do that when I look at the statistics and the behind the scenes uh, numbers on my show. So if you're someone who's been an avid listener, an OG, and you love the show, or if you're new here, uh, please let me know. You can let me know over on Instagram. I'm at Heather Hirsch MD, and please continue to share across your social media platforms. Uh, today we're talking about medical gaslighting and uh, as always, when I do podcasts, these are always raw, real, and unedited. And like most of my shows, the main topic comes from something a patient has said to me. My patient earlier today and I were talking about the idea of, uh, maybe it was gaslighting as a whole, uh, but then started to talk about medical gaslighting. And I as someone who sees primarily women, I'm going to make a lot of assumptions in this show. And like I almost always do on my podcast. That's the fun of having a podcast. If you feel like you want a place where you can completely vent, then definitely host your own podcast. So I'm going to start by, you know, thinking through this as the lens of a woman over 35 who's who's going to a doctor for a medical condition. And there's a couple of reasons. And the first is the obvious one is that I primarily and actually only for the last several years see women. And so the concepts or the medical issues or the things that men might bring to a physician's attention, I'm just not in tune to anymore. So I don't want to say that this only happens to women. I'm not, but this entire show is going to be through the lens of what I think women experience in terms of medical gaslighting. And the second assumption here is that women are a little bit more in tune with their bodies than men. And now for that, I will simply just use me and my husband. Um, I don't think it's a far stretch uh, to say that women may be more inclined to be more in tune with their bodies and have more of a, um, you know, psychological connection with, uh, their bodies. This, for example, a great example for this is bloating. Um, I don't ha have, you ever heard a man say they feel bloated? It, we probably have, you probably have, but not as often as you heard a female say they feel bloated. Bloated is like just, you know, it's the sensation of feeling more full. Sometimes it's something you can like visibly see or you can feel we wear tighter clothes than men often. Uh, women are also slightly more in tune with their bodies because uh, via nature, we have cyclic patterns, uh, especially during our reproductive years. And that's AKA our periods. 
And so men have steady sex hormones their entire lives, you know, after puberty, whereas women's go up and down every month and then go wonky in perimenopause and become very volatile and then pretty much crash and burn postmenopausally. So I think that there's, you know, two big assumptions here. One is that I'm really kind of speaking from the lens and the view of a female, you know, at 35 and up, and that women are more in tune with their body. So both could be totally wrong, but that's what we're going to go on here for the basis of the rest of this this talk. So before I got on, I Googled, what is the definition of medical gaslighting? And this is what, you know, Google says, or Wikipedia, is that medical gaslighting is a term used to describe doctors or medical practitioners who wrongly blame a patient's illness or symptoms on psychological factors or deny a patient's illness entirely. For example, wrongly telling patients that they're not sick. And I also want to add in there, although this is not in the Wikipedia definition as you know robust as that might be, it's wrongly telling patients that there is nothing wrong. And when I thought about medical gaslighting and took a big step back, what I really think that's the most important part that any practitioner or any clinician can get behind is validation. And this is really important because I think this is the first part of the medical gaslighting. Again, even though in that description, that's the second part. Uh, but I think this is something that can actually be easily challenged in uh, a doctor-patient relationship. If you're a provider or a practitioner listening to this show, I know there are a lot of practitioners and providers who listen to the show. I also know that as a medical practitioner, I'm also a patient. So we're all patients on some level. But the part of validation can really help to, uh, I, wanna, I don't want to say necessarily eradicate or resolve gaslighting, but it can really help to alleviate the strain that patients can feel if they feel as though they're being medically gaslit and people don't even know that this is a real, this is a thing. It's some, it's a term that I think is starting to be thrown around. People are talking about it. It may even gain more traction. And I think that it probably will just because in society, things are turning more patient facing patient satisfaction is a lot more important to hospitals. And so I think this term's actually going to probably grow, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But I think the validation part, let's dig into that. So in my experience, women do tend to come to me with more vague symptoms than in a brief small period of time when I saw men. I always say to my trainees and my residents that, again, in my own personal experience, in my own personal experience, treating men was much easier than treating women. And look, I'm always one for a challenge. I find a life without challenge to be pretty gruesome. I really like challenge. I really like learning. It's very clear that I do. And I think that's why I gravitated towards, towards treating women because I was more intrigued by these intricacies and these nuances that women often presented with. And not only do they, are they slightly more in tune, but they also are more curious and they have more questions. So Again, lots of assumptions here. I know, don't don't blame me even though I'm the messenger, but I have to in order to kind of wrap my head around this and find some place to start. When I saw men, it was, you know, um, okay, um, sir, I think you have carried the diagnosis now of hypertension. And because of that, uh, we should prescribe this medication to help lower your blood pressure. Really? Yeah, I do think so because we don't want you to have a heart attack or a stroke later on. Okay. <laughs> 
That was the conversation. Now, have this conversation with yourself or with a friend. Wait a second. Do I really have hypertension? How do you know? I Googled this. It says you need to check many times. It says I should do this at home. This blood pressure medication, I looked it up. Here are the side effects. What about this? What about this? What about this? Wait, are you sure I can't do more exercise, more lifestyle, more diet? What can I eat? Can I see a dietitian? Can I see a nutritionist? Can I... Okay. Neither is bad. And again, lots of assumptions. I just want to say that one more time. So you are really clear that I, I, I do have to make a lot of assumptions in order to sort of, again, make this point. But women have a lot more questions. And if you were smiling during that and you were like, yeah, that's me. Or like, I could totally see myself doing that. That's fine. That's great. You know, again, the internet is, is a both bad and good place in terms of going down a medical rabbit hole. And people nowadays do know that. And instead of saying, well, I think I found the answer myself a lot of times now it's well okay I did see this but I'm asking you as the expert I think that there's this shift too okay I found this but what do you think so so women are more inquisitive they're more curious they're more knowledgeable and they have more vague complaints so seeing when was always a little bit easier for me they were just kind of more okay now would they be as compliant as women actually probably not so much but that's that's another part of this story so the validation is really important here. So let's go back to that. So I think the validation can really help uh, clinicians. And if you feel like you're not being heard by a doctor, ask yourself as my doctor, if they can't solve the problem, um, are they validating my concerns? So that could look something like this. And we'll use this hypertension example, for example. So it could say, well, I hear that you are, you know, interested in how we make this diagnosis. Let me show you the research that we have on how we make the diagnosis of high blood pressure so that you feel really confident in why we're developing a plan around this, right? As opposed to like, here's this medication. I do want you to take it. And then what about when it comes to what else you can do? I think there's a lot more validation that can go on there. And that validation can sound like, I hear that you really do want to work on your lifestyle and your diet. Why don't we set up a, you know, like a, re a realistic time frame here to see if your blood pressure changes on its own? Why don't we say three months? Patients, oh, that's too, okay, let's do six months. Okay, let's do six months considering the blood pressure wasn't like through the roof. <laughs> and let's have you check your blood pressure at home and, you know, start doing a daily walk and reducing your salt intake. And let's come back together. Because I think that women like to be partners in their own plan and want that validation that they've been heard and that that can be done. And then, you know, when it comes to side effects or, you know, risks and benefits, you know, women really do like on average, a pretty detailed conversation about that face value doesn't necessarily work and nor does it work with me. So I hear you loud and clear. Let's talk about the benefits of why we want to lower your blood pressure. Okay, we don't want you to have a heart attack, stroke, or cardiovascular disease, which is the leading cause of death in women. Oh, okay, no, that's 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 all good. Okay, now the risks could be um, this and this and this. Now, when we compare those risks to you know heart disease or diabetes or you know uh, cardiac cardiovascular incidents, you're like, how do you feel about that? Um, to which then you know you really help the patient understand. Um, more about this diagnosis. What does this mean? How can they change their lifestyle? What are the side effects of this medication? Let's go to like symptoms, right? Let's use bloating just because I use that as an example in the beginning. So when a patient comes to me and says, I feel bloated, this is something where I think can be a lot of dismissiveness on the part of a clinician. 
another similar one is hair loss or weight gain. Weight gain is huge. And and I'm going to actually specifically not do weight gain because we could do a whole different topic, talk on that. But that's probably, you know, something that women have been gaslit their entire lives by society in general. So that's it's a huge other topic. But let's use bloating because I think or hair loss, right? Those are both really good examples. Both of these could get chalked up by a doctor as well. I think it's just probably the food that you're eating. Why don't you eat less broccoli? Or, you know, losing your hair is normal. It's just a part of aging. Oh my gosh. Those sound so dismissive. Those sound so dismissive. And so your doctor may not have this magical treatment for bloating or magical treatment for hair loss. Um, And in all honesty, we really don't. But even just having your doctor or if you're the practitioner, validate those symptoms and ask a little bit more about them and having your patients journal and track them can be super helpful. So instead of, right, what could feel like gaslighting is, well, that's just kind of normal. It's probably what you're eating. (laughs) Okay. It could go more like, ah, this sounds like it's really affecting your life. Tell me how it's affecting your life. Well, I've had to buy new pants. I can't, I don't like going out to dinner with my friends anymore. I avoid these foods that I really love. Oh, that's like, that's a lot, right? Buying new clothes is really, no one wants to buy new pants. We're not joking about that. Um, or hair loss. Well, I don't feel self-confident. I don't want to be intimate with my partner. I don't like who I'm, I'm becoming depressed. So these face value things that can be very easily dismissed can really affect a woman's life significantly. So, you know, I tend to help with validating like, so this sounds like it's very troublesome. Tell me how it's affecting your life. And then having her provide examples. And those examples can be very helpful for you and the practitioner because now you know what is it. Well, there's a level of bloating that I can see in, but when I have to buy a new pair of pants, that's that's like the limit of like, I think this is really a problem here that I'm asking you for help for. Uh, and so then there's kind of thinking through, um, you know, I like journal and tracking. So whether you're a clinician or you're a patient, I love that because it's like, well, what I would tell my patients is why don't we, I'm, I, I'm not exactly sure what's causing this. So let's journal and track. Could it be, you know, who knows? Could it be if you get a better night's sleep, you're not as bloated the next day. If you drink red wine, could it cause bloating? If it's, blah, 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 it doesn't matter. But journaling and tracking can help with validating the patient's concerns um, while also not being dismissive and can actually help you as a patient, like better understand what your triggers are and better understand where your boundaries are of, well, this is just my body naturally doing its thing that I don't like versus now this is a problem that I really need help for. All right. Next, I kind of want to riff a little bit here on why medical gaslighting happens, because that's going to go into the second part of this, which in my description was when medical practitioners wrongly blame a patient's illness on psychological factors. Okay. So we're going to get into that deeper part next. That's the part that maybe hurts a little bit more. I don't know. They both hurt. Wrongly telling someone they're not sick or wrongly telling someone that that their complaint is not that important, they're both pretty bad. But let's talk about why medical gaslighting happens before we get to the next part. So medical gaslighting often happens because of two big factors, lack of education and the strain and the stress that is placed on clinicians. So now I want to give a little bit of a... uh, now I want to give a little bit of like turning the tables to sort of better understand how clinicians feel because 
And we look to clinicians to be our, you know, everything and help us through our medical. That's why they went to medical school. And that's why, you know, we, we, we call them our doctor and that's why we trust them with our lives. But the system is really hard on clinicians, MDs, DOs, NPs, PAs, nurses, MAs. Look, we're understaffed. We're overworked. We're underpaid, just like everyone else. But the fact is that we're still human, just like everyone else. And those pressures can be really felt. One of the big ways those pressures are felt is that if you have a doctor that works in a hospital system, not like their own practice or concierge medicine, they likely are being told that they have to see more patients in less time. And for most doctors, that feels horrible. It, it feels horrible. No one likes that. No one goes to med school to say, I really want to be like a disgruntled, unhappy, <laughs> like doctor doing paperwork. No. But that's kind of what happens behind the scenes. And as we have to see more patients, we face something that everyone else faces, which is burnout. And that's really high right now. It's probably higher than ever. It's high, high through the pandemic, high post-pandemic. Now we have even more medical issues that we've created during the pandemic, mental health issues, long COVID, um, you know, cancers, things that were missed that were never screened, on and on. Like the, the demands on clinicians have only probably risen and that turns into doctors who rushed, who are tired and who are overworked. And to be in the shoes of a clinician um, and then to be faced with something that you're not exactly sure that you can actually treat, sometimes it can come out really poorly on the side of a clinician. And it is, again, I would say those are stressors that are superimposed on top of a clinician that I wish we had better structures to alleviate because we would all get better care. We would all get better care. Now, the second thing is a lack of education. And this specifically goes down to menopause and midlife and hormones, right? If you've been an avid listener to the show, thank you. Um, we know that education around menopause, perimenopause, hormone therapy is like abysmal. It's awful. Again, you know, I have a subscribers only show. You can listen to that. I think I tell my story about how I became a menopause doctor. You know, most doctors get one lecture in medical school and maybe one hour or two hours in their residency if it's internal medicine and maybe just a handful more if it's OBGYN. OBGYNs you would expect would know a lot about menopause um, and hormone therapy, but often it's not that much better than internal medicine or family medicine. And that is not their fault. That has to do with the educational system. We don't, uh, you know, have a priority on menopausal care, despite the fact that women are living a third of their lives postmenopausal, despite the fact that we now have women doing um, prophylactic oophorectomies, early surgical menopause for high-risk breast cancer and ovarian cancer conditions, despite many reasons, including also the fact that menopause is directly parallel to the development of chronic diseases. So there's many reasons I could argue why this is absolutely a public health crisis. But for where we are right now, these are not really appreciated as to be important topics during medical school or residency training. So now you might have a physician who's burned out and exhausted and stressed and really cares about you, but they don't know what to do with bloating or perimenopause or hormone therapy or some of the more even bigger topics besides for just bloating. And they're going to tell you that maybe you are just anxious. Maybe you are just tired. 
Maybe you just need a vacation. Maybe you just need a glass of wine. If a doctor ever tells you that, please walk out. (laughs) Maybe they just tell you, right, you need to just, you know, watch porn with your partner. Maybe they need a whole bunch of dismissive topics. I could tell you that people have told me that their doctors have told them. Let's let's go on. Why don't you pick up gardening to help you lose weight now that you're retired? Why don't you just accept your body the way that it is? Uh, why don't you just go on vacation and, you know, drink some wine? It goes on and on and on. The dismissive statements don't seem to stop. That is slightly different than, you know, I think that's a step above not validating concerns. It's taking it to a level where you're, you're, you are at that point. The, the doctor is at that point. I think that that's probably what I would call medical gaslighting. Do I have reasons why I think that happens? Of course. We just said that. Time, stress, um, lack of education. So who is really to blame here? I think in this thesis, it's really the educational system, which hasn't historically placed a high priority on understanding the sex differences uh, between men and women, uh, and particularly in women who are, you know, after childbearing age or 35 and up, and how that impacts the way they receive and ask for medical care. And so the important part here is that I think that instead of placing the blame on individuals, which isn't really all that helpful, it is really to step back to think, how did we get to this point? Why do we have this problem? What's the root of this problem? And then therefore, how can we better address and come up with solutions to these problems? All right, but let's also address the elephant in the room of what to do if a doctor is saying that your symptoms are all in your head. I think this is really important to break down. And I would love to give you um, some tips and tricks on how you can really best have these conversations. And I'm not perfect. I don't know all the answers here. But that feeling of feeling so dismissed that someone has gone so far is to say, not only are you not having that, but it's caused by some kind of medical diagnosis or medical illness. So very often women are told, and I would go so far as to say probably more than men, that they have anxiety and that that is a source of their problems. Now, that's kind of a catch-all phrase. Look, who isn't anxious in 2022? (laughs) We're all a little bit anxious. But to say that I'm going to write that in your chart and maybe prescribe you a medication for that when you personally feel like that is not correct It's very important and it feels really, really terrible. It's a big reason that patients do leave their clinicians. They feel like they're incorrectly given specifically a psychological diagnosis that they do not have. Now, we could also, again, be devil's advocate and say that you do. But let's say that you strongly feel that you don't. How do you handle this conversation with your doctor? Well, you know, I think actually having this conversation with your doctor is really important, if not for the very reason that you are the person that your patient has a your doctor has an aha moment over. So doctors have aha moments, just like we all do, where they think like, oh yeah, I was really wrong, or I've never thought about that. Now, I'm not saying all doctors are just as amazing as me and that they may do this, but there's a good chance that he or she might. 
So I think it's worth having this conversation as opposed to just walking away and finding a new doctor, which you're totally welcome to do. But I think having this conversation with your doctor could help you find some closure, close the loop, and if anything, help to educate them. So one thing I would definitely recommend doing is never doing these things in annual visits. Um, And we can talk more about that if you're interested. But an annual visit is the very last place to have these conversations that are very in-depth about symptoms that you're having. And I want to explain to you why. As the doctor, there's lots of things that the doctor has to do during your annual visit to take up a lot of time. They have to review your screening. They have to update your medical history. They have to um, make sure you're up to date with any um, labs that you need. They need to review your medication list, refill them, make sure they know what you're on, you know, ask you about your social history. A lot of patients, unfortunately, because the medical system is completely garbage, think that your annual visit is the time to ask questions. And it's actually actually not. <laughs> it's, I know it's completely garbage. If you're like, my doctor always does. Your doctor's probably like me and like really nice and really likes to explain things to you, but I promise you is also slowly burning herself out. So what this means is that if you have a big symptom, if you've got a lot of questions, you need to have a problem-focused visit that's not your annual visit. So you need to call the doctors off and say, hi, I need to see Dr. Hirsch because I'm having X, Y, and Z. Or even if you have a lot of questions, it's probably surrounding a symptom. And so you say, I need to you know, talk to Dr. Hirsch, a problem visit for concerns I have about my hypertension or my GI issues, which is your bloating. Okay. You got to make a problem visit for those. That's the first step. And I know that's like, maybe that's an industry streak. I don't know why this isn't more commonly understood, but annual visits are not actually the best place. Your doctor's already probably flustered trying to get a lot of stuff done. And then having to have those conversations about extra things that can go really long. It's not the best time and setup for either of you to do that. Okay. So first step is have a problem focused visit in the problem focused visit. If you're the patient, bring in a journal where you've been tracking these symptoms. If hopefully your doctor's already validated to you that these symptoms matter and we want to investigate them more, but if not, you know, say like uh, bring in your journal and say, look, this has been really affecting my life and here's why. And this is what I've noticed. Can you help me with this? And as the clinician, therefore, you have a problem visit or whether it's 15 minutes or 30 minutes or 20 minutes to just talk about one topic in depth that's going to set you both up for success. If your doctor has already dismissed you, you can say, look, I think we met last time and you told me you think it was anxiety or right, you're telling me I have anxiety, but I really don't feel like I do. You can use some examples. I was really anxious when I got divorced. I was really anxious after the birth of my baby. I was really anxious in college. And I know exactly what that felt like. And this feels completely different. Um, If you don't have a history of anxiety, this obviously wouldn't work. But a doctor should be able to pick up on that. If you say something like, this feels completely different. And here's why. If you've never had any of those issues, you can maybe point to a friend or you can maybe actually pinpoint some things that would, you know, help to 
demonstrate your case that you don't have that. Um, you could either use, you know, I have seen my mom struggle with anxiety or my sister struggle with bipolar. They exhibit these signs and that's not what I have. I don't have trouble ruminating. I actually am having trouble falling asleep <laughs> and I am have great sleep hygiene. I've been journaling and tracking. And so I don't think it's that I'm anxious. I think there's something else here. And I really think it's important that we both investigate this. Using those psychological cues of shared decision-making, making both people feel like we should tackle this together can help both you from the patient side and your clinician or you if you are the clinician again as I was saying in the beginning part of this show you know having this shared decision making process really 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 helps to dismantle whatever we call medical gaslighting because there's nothing better than actually trying to solve a problem together especially if you're not entirely sure so if you're the patient um, again, you can really kind of use some detailed examples in your own um, journaling and tracking and history to help demonstrate why you don't think it's anxiety or depression or, you know, emotional eating or what have you. You can say, look, you know, the definition of emotional eating is eating for comfort at, you know, and feeling too full and, um, to, to you know, to satisfy the, and get dopamine, but that's not what's happening. I'm actually eating, you know, five small meals and I'm eating 1500 calories, normal intake for me or whatever it is, <laughs> you know, so th th that doesn't make any sense. So, you know, come in for a problem-focused visit where you've really thought through why you don't think you have the diagnosis. And again, your doctor is not that to say that this is going to absolutely solve the problem. You may still end up in the same place, but at least if you've done anything, you've set some wheels in motion um, in that doctor's mind that, uh, that, that maybe they won't continue to do that for future patients to come. And if you're the clinician, you know, I think that there's a lot of trying to work through some of these problems. If you're a clinician and you listen to the show, you're probably already really interested in this and you're probably a great clinician and have great bedside manner, but there are still things that I don't know. And I always say to my patients, you know, I'm really upfront and honest by just simply saying, I don't know. It's okay. You know, I think there's a time where there's a lot of ego and doctors were afraid to say, I don't know, but now people really respect that. I say, I don't know, but I think this is really important. And since I don't know the answer, I think I want to send you to someone who I think does. And oftentimes I will either lead to a referral. You could also use or say, I'm not sure, but I'm going to look this up. The reason I've stopped doing that is that my life moves so fast that before I know it, that patient's back in my office and I haven't, or I still don't know the answer. And even if I did look it up, I don't know how sure I would be if I didn't know in the first place. So I'd probably still send the patient for a referral, but you can certainly choose whatever path that works best for you. But I think, so, so to answer this question is, you know, is medical gaslighting a thing? I think maybe. Do I think that it's the individual doctor's fault? Actually, no. I think that a lot of this comes down to the way medicine is practiced and the fact that doctors don't get great education in women's health at all. Do I think that we can improve this? Yes. Do I think it'll take a lot of work? Yes. On your part? Yes, <laughs> I do. Um, but whether you're you know, not a healthcare provider or you are, we actually have to all work together. The, the the fact that you know patient satisfaction and metrics of um, patient um, satisfaction um, and quality improvement they're not going to go away, and so 
but at the same time, the constraints placed on doctors are, are getting higher and higher and higher. So I think there's a lot of smart people who are trying to reverse engineer this and make this a better place for clinicians and providers. And I've got my own ideas on that as well. So if you feel like this is happening to you, ask yourself, is it the validation part that's missing or are you giving me a diagnosis that I'm sure I don't have? And how can I express to you clearly, confidently, and calmly that I don't think that you're right and that I need to go see another, um, seek another opinion? And so the last part of this is, you know, if you are just up against someone who is not listening to you and you feel really dismissed and really stuck, the answer is always seek another opinion. And we live in a country um, here in the United States where you can see another doctor. You may have to wait. You may have to travel. Uh, you may have to do telemedicine or virtual, but you can always see another doctor for a second opinion. And I think that that's always what you should do if you don't feel like you're getting the right answers and you have a sixth sense that there could be something else there, especially if it's hormonally related. All right. On that note, thank you so much for listening to the show. I love to hear your, your opinions, your views, your responses. You can always find me on, um, socials at Heather Hersham D. And, uh, if you leave me a DM, um, I will do my very best to respond. You can always write a star review about the show. You can share it to your friends and have a discussion with your friends. Do you think that you've had this happening before? How prevalent do you think this is? I have a very, you know, biased view because I see a lot of patients who come to my office who tell me these things. So it seems like it happens a lot, but I could be totally wrong. I don't know, but I'd love to hear your opinion. Thank you guys. And I'll see you next week for a brand new episode. Bye everyone. If I haven't already done so, thank you. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to my show. Consider subscribing so you never miss an episode. Also, if you love the show, your stars or a quick review could really help other women who are searching for information on menopause and midlife around the globe find this show. If you want to work with me, consider the Reclaiming Menopause Masterclass. The link for that is in the description to this show. Thank you again from the bottom of my heart for all your support, and I'll see you next week for a brand new episode.